My name is Michael Guy, a publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me today are Dylan Patel. Dylan, the first time you and I are going to be chatting here, but introduce yourself to the audience and to me. Who are you? What's your background? What have you done throughout your career? And what are you doing currently? My name is Dylan Patel, and I'm the chief analyst of Semi Analysis. I founded this firm a handful of years ago, and we mainly focus on semiconductors and AI. My, I myself have historically worked in sort of data science, AI as well as semi. And then on the team, we have some folks that are also in, in sort of, you know, all the way from experience at ASML through to experience at design firms and things like that, right? And and a couple people who worked at funds as well, historically, right? There's five of us. We're, we're sort of international. There's There's two of us in the U.S., one person in Japan, one person in Taiwan, and one person in Singapore. And so we mostly focus on semi and AI from a very technical and market perspective, right? Because we have all the way from technical folks to people who have worked at hedge funds. And so we forecast supply and, and volumes and units, but we also flow through to what's the technical reasons why someone is gaining market share, or losing market share, what, what's happening on the technology side. We also do some technology consulting, right? Like, should a company do this or that, right? What, what should they do on roadmap? What should they do on, you know... Uh, a lot of different things like that, right? So that's sort of the stuff we generally focus on. And we work with firms both in the semi and, semiconductor and AI space, do a little bit of venture investing, but mostly a lot of uh, a lot of data research services as well. And then there's a newsletter that sort of popped off, you know, maybe about a year ago that we started. And that's fun as well. Yeah, congrats on the success there. I see like 70,000 plus people are are getting your blast there. Um, okay, so let's get into it. So you said you really kind of started this effort a couple of years ago. What made you get into uh, this side of the tech world in terms of just putting content out? Because I think the AI narrative is really only one that took off in a big way around chat GPT. Sounds like you were involved in this way before that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, funnily enough, right, like I, I put out a blog on the cost of training uh, GPT-3 the same day that chat GPT launched. And that was just a coincidence. I had no forewarning that that was going to launch. I had a friend at OpenAI that like they were excited, but they didn't have like anything like I didn't have like any specific forewarning that ChatGPT was going to launch and be as big as it was. And so it just so happened, like as a coincidence, I published a blog on how much does it cost to train GPT-3, which was a prior generation before GPT-3.5, which was for ChatGPT release or GPT-4. But as far as like what sort of was the impetus to get, you know, sort of involved in the content, public content creation space, right? Because I was doing a bit of consulting before I was creating content publicly, you know, we were doing research and stuff as a firm. But before we built the newsletter, it was just really boredom during COVID. It's like, like pe- seeing news articles and being like, that's just wrong. No, stop. Like, like this, you know, this is the truth is this, right? And it was like this innate need to want to correct people on the internet, which I think we all have, right? We get sucked into that comment section and, and argue with someone. And it was like, there's a more efficient way to do this, right? Especially and, and, and the impetus was really was someone I respect, like, getting misled by one of these pieces. And I was like, oh, okay, no, I really have to put something out that's like, tells the truth, right? Because people who are smart are getting misled because they just don't know, right? And so that's sort of what was the impetus. And, and a lot of the focus was, you know, it was always on semi and AI, right? Like we talked about AI chips, startups, et cetera, you know, well before ChatGPT and all that. We, I mean, that's what our consulting is focused on as well. Yeah, you mentioned that you've got uh, a couple of people in Singapore and Taiwan. Um, I'm curious, how did you build out that network of people that are involved at uh, com, And maybe how important is that, is that perspective uh, having researchers, analysts in other countries that are, you know, maybe also at the forefront of this? So, so I think that the semiconductor supply chain is one of the like most difficult to understand in the world, right? I mean, collectively as an industry, semiconductors spend more on R&D than any other industry, including pharmaceuticals, 
right? If you actually sum out like all the equipment companies that are for making chips through to design and analog and so on and so forth, there's more R&D spent in semi than anywhere else, even pharmaceuticals, right? And so, and then CapEx wise, the same, right? The electronics manufacturing sort of industry as a whole is, is massive on CapEx, right? So there is a massive amount of stuff going on, but people in the West really like, you know, especially like when you look at like a classic analyst, right? Like they're like, Hey, yeah, I'm a chips analyst, right? Okay. Well, I focus. That means they focus on, you know, in the US, right? Then they focus on NVIDIA and AMD and Intel and various firms in the US, but they don't, or Qualcomm, right? But they don't go through to like, well, hey, like what's this firm that they work with here? And what's this random like Japanese company who's a tool supplier to this company who's, who makes chips for this company, right? Like you, know, you have to float through the whole supply chain, right? And so, you know, because a lot of the best information, oh, a lot of it's public. It's just people don't go through to it, right? It's like from a random conference, right? It's an engineering conference for this, right? You know, one of my favorite conferences is for photoresistors, right? So Myron's in Japan and he's, there's a conference called, there's a photoresist conference, right? Photoresist is basically the stuff you put on a wafer, a sil- silicon wafer before you put it in a lithography tool, right? I think a lot of people have heard of ASML and their lithography tools, but there's a specific chemical that you have to put on the wafer before you put on it, right? And this chemical industry is worth billions of dollars alone, right? It's, you know, there's a, there's one of the the major companies there is being taken private right now for $7 billion, right? And they only have like 30% market share, right? And that's pretty much all they do is the photoresist. And there's a conference for that, right? Or, or, or it's literally 4,000 Japanese people, right? Because this industry is often dominated by ja- Japan, this photoresist industry. And I, I was legit the only person who was proud, right? <laughs> there were a handful of like Dutch guys and and like, you know, Intel dudes, right? But I was the only brown person at this conference. I was like, what? You know, it's it's crazy how insular parts of the supply chain are, right? And it's what do these people do? They focus on the exact mixture of chemicals and resin and you know, all these sorts of things for photoresist, right? Polymers that need to be embedded and and every generation it changes. And there's, you know, and 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 who knows about this, right? There's people in the abstraction stack who know about it one layer up, right? The lithography people know about the photoresist. And everyone else doesn't really care, right? The person designing a chip doesn't really care. Doesn't matter to them, right? You know, and 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 so there's such insularness in this chip supply chain. And so it's really important that people sort of look top to bottom, right? Like, hey, what's going on at this layer? Because that actually tells you about, you know, yes, those people and those people in the photoresist world don't know anything about designing chips, right? Like they know they need to be smaller and they know that like, hey, like, well, my photoresist needs to be able to help you print lines that are four nanometers smaller, right? You know, than the last generation, but like, and what are all the technical challenges? But they don't actually know like what's going on with the chips, right? Like, so it's like kind of, it's up and down the supply chain both ways, right? So you go through and you look at, there's industries like that in all three of these countries, right? Japan really dominates certain chemicals, certain types of equipment, just like the Dutch dominate certain types of equipment, just like the U.S., dominate certain types of equipment. U.S. really dominates design, but then manufacturing is dominated by Taiwan, right? Like TSMC. Memory is dominated by Korea, right? You know, Singapore has a few niche industries as well, right? So when you flow through to all these industries, it's a very sparse industry. It really does, you know, you do have to be embedded within each of these industries, right? To really fully get a, to get a good picture of the whole supply chain at the level of depth that we need, right? Now, now investors don't need that level of depth always, right? Like it's, it's certain types of folks and certain catalysts and certain things that need to be at that level of depth. But generally, you know, you, you don't need to know anything about how, how the chip is printed to know that AI chips are selling like crazy. And also like there's some interesting like things going on there. Is there any consideration to sort of, yeah, since you mentioned all these different countries that, you know, are, are involved up and down the supply chain that, you know, you don't hear about on the CBCs of the world. Or is there any consideration to geopolitical risk 
kind of throwing things off on the supply chain when it comes to AI, or are these things still largely isolated? Yeah, I would say there's the whole like US-China, you know, geopolitical, right, invasion risk, all these sorts of things, right? I mean, I mean, I think it's very clear that TSMC does have a lower multiple than many other businesses that are in the semiconductor industry. And you ask investors and there's like, no, like, you know, you talk to some folks at, you know, these massive funds and they're like, yeah, there is a bit of a valuation discount because there is a Taiwan invasion risk at some point, right? Maybe not, you know, super soon, but 2027 or 2030, right? Like there is enough of a risk that, you know, naval like commanders will talk about it, right? So there is a little bit of a valuation discount. Now, when people say, hey, is there a huge geopolitical risk in semiconductors? It's like, absolutely massive. Right. And one of my favorite things to do about this is like, you know, there's the trade spat between the U.S. and China. Right. You know, block this, block that. You know, the Dutch and Japanese are joining in on the with the U.S. on unblocking uh, China from certain access to certain technologies and industries and vice versa. Right. German China is blocking like gallium and a few things. But what's funny. Right. And I wrote an article like, you know, a couple of maybe like a year and a half ago or two years ago. Austria. Right. Little old Austria in Europe. Right. You think, well, what do they have to do with the semiconductor supply chain, right? In Europe, we, we all know about the Dutch, right? ASML. But, but what about Austria? Well, it turns out there's two different companies there that have market share north of 80% and north of 90% even in certain types of technology, right? But if you look at like the leading edge, right? So, you know, an, an, another funny thing is, right? Like there's, you know, again, ASML, they make EUV, right? Extreme ultraviolet lithography, right? The most advanced form of lithography. I think that's like... It's really important, but turns out there's this thing that you have to put inside the tool for a chip design. Basically, it's called a mask, right? You can think of it as a stencil, right? You basically put this stencil inside this $150, $200 million tool from the Dutch, and then this tool, this mask has the chip design on it, right? And you cycle through that many times to make chips, right? This stencil, right? And so it's called a mask. And Austria has a company who makes a specific tool that writes these masks, right? And they have... 80, 80 plus percent share, but on EUV, right, on on 7 nanometer, on 5 nanometer, on 3 nanometer, they have 100% share, right? So it's like, okay, well, Austria actually could shut down the entire semiconductor supply chain, right? It's, it's kind of, you know, there's a lot of like independencies like that. There's another company called EV Group. They're private. And they also they also have a very high share, similarly, extremely high share in, the, in certain critical technologies, not the whole semiconductor industry. Parts of it would shut down if it weren't for them, right? And so it's sort of, you know, you, you talk about, is there a geopolitical risk with all these niches? Absolutely, right? And as far as I know, there's no one trying to change it, like, entirely, right? And I don't know if it's even possible to go entirely, right? Because the universities in Austria focus on just that one little vertical of the semiconductor industry, right? That, that mask writing, right? Using E-beams, electron beams to write these masks, which are stencils, right? Effectively making stencils electron beams. And the universities there only focus on that. And the companies focused on that for decades. It's like, how would you build this institutional knowledge in America or in, you know, in, in China or wherever else overnight? You couldn't, right? You couldn't build it overnight. You wouldn't, you couldn't even build it like, you know, if you gave it five years and billions of dollars, right? For certain aspects of the supply chain, right? It would literally take people trying stuff for decades to pick up all this institutional knowledge, right? Or just hiring those people, right? Like, and, and bringing them over, right? Like, there's no really effective way to fix this geopolitical risk entirely, right? Now, there's ways to mitigate it, right? By having production, you know, in, in your country. So maybe you don't have necessarily every piece of equipment, but once you have equipment installed, it's sort of a bit more safer, right? At least in terms of, hey, there's no, you know, we can still make chips for a while. We can't expand production maybe, but we can still make them for a while. 
So sort of there is that geopolitical risk there. Speaking about the, since you mentioned private companies, there are obviously plenty of public companies that are part of that supply chain, that value chain. But I don't really hear too much about sort of price action and some of the public stocks, whether they're in the U.S. or internationally, that are involved, for example, in you know, some of the things that NVIDIA is doing. Any observations on you know, the narrative maybe uh, not focusing on those supply public stock companies that you know, there's some maybe better opportunities there because people are just not focusing on that part of the story? Sure, sure. So I think there's uh, you know, sort of the upstream and downstream suppliers of, say, you know, specifically NVIDIA right, are, are really important. And the AI sort of stack, right? And so there's a lot of companies that people aren't really fully focusing on, right? So for example, you know, NVIDIA makes the GPUs, but like, who do they buy stuff from, right? Well, it turns out the people they buy stuff from are not benefiting that massively, right? Because if you think about it, right, let's, let's sort of paint a picture, right? So Meta has talked a lot about, and Microsoft both have talked a lot about how much how many AI chips they're going to buy, right? It, historically, they used to spend about 20 to $30 billion on data centers, right? Including the data center itself, physically, the chips inside of it, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? The power infrastructure, et cetera. Now they're talking about spending way more, right? Microsoft's going to spend, you know, $50 billion or even more, right? On chips this year. But, you know, uh, but it goes from, you know, hey, in 2022, how much did I spend on AI chips? You know, a couple billion, right? How am I going to, how much are going to spend in 2024 based on the indications that they've said? Tens of billions, right? But what about the other types of chips? Actually, a lot of them I've reduced purchasing on, right? Uh, you know, for example, Intel, Intel CPUs, I don't purchase as many of those. And, you know, you go down the list, there's a lot of stuff that I'm purchasing a lot less, right? Certain types of memory and et cetera, right? Really, because I'm, I'm increasing spending, but I'm also shifting some of my existing spending toward to AI. And so then, okay, a lot of this money flows to NVIDIA, but NVIDIA has these massive margins, right? They have, they have these margins that are 80%, right? On these data center GPUs. Right. Uh, gross margins, basically roughly, you know, effectively a 5x markup on the cost of manufacturing to them. Right. And then they get they don't manufacture themselves. Right. They they design chips, design systems and get it manufactured by others. Right. Like TSMC, like SK Hynix, like Fabernet, you know, go down the list. And there's all these contract manufacturers who man or chip firms that manufacture for them. And, you know, you think about it with like, OK, well, if NVIDIA has 10 billion dollars of you know revenue. But because their margins are 80, 85%, right? 5X markup, it turns out they only spread $2,000, billion downstream, right? Because the chips are so high margin. Whereas historically, right? When I was buying data center chips, right? The, my suppliers had 50, 60% margins, right? So 2X markup, right? So if I spent $5 billion, then I had $2.5 billion downstream manufacturing revenue. So it turns out even though NVIDIA is sort of soaring and there's huge orders from at least the biggest companies, and many other companies, but especially like Microsoft Meta is the biggest sort of individual customers. Even though there's humongous orders and sales, the downstream supply chain is not always benefiting as much. Now, there are pockets of it, right, for certain types of chips that are benefiting massively, right, uh, because it's a shift of what type of chips. But overall, the pie, even though it could double, right, from $5 billion to $10 billion because of the margin, NVIDIA just eats a lot of that margin, right? And so the actual the number of chips being purchased is... Or, or, you know, the sort of manufacturing volumes sort of stay roughly flat. But in reality, there are some parts of the supply chain that are sort of eating, hurting really bad, right? And there's some parts of the supply chain that are benefiting massively. And so when we think about that, it's like companies like Marvell and Fabernet and SK Hynix and, you know, so many more coherent and, you know, the list could go on and on. It depends on which part of the supply chain we want to talk about, but we could sort of break down an AI server and talk about companies in each... We'll be back after a quick break. 
Hello listeners, Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Segment. So the margin point, I think, is obviously a, a powerful when it comes to NVIDIA. But, you know, one thing I know, at least from business school and just logic, is that over time, margins get reduced because of competition. So that led to a discussion around moat, right, when it comes to different semi companies, NVIDIA, obviously, in particular. How sustainable are these types of margins? I mean, that, that is the bare case I often hear, at least on mainstream media. It's like, all right, co- competitors come in, that's what ends up creating lower margins and things like that. Talk through that, because that seems to be a critical component of the long-term argument for some of these stocks. Sure, sure. So I think that the the margin component is very, sorry, the, the moat of NVIDIA is very strong today, right? Like there is absolutely no no contest in terms of, hey, if I were to buy a chip today, have it installed, what would I want if I wanted to train a large language model, if I wanted to run a large language model, if I wanted to generate images, you know, all these sorts of uh, use cases that are popping up, right? And, and it's, it, there's no question there that NVIDIA has the strongest. But, you know, that does change over time, right? And, and a big part of this is, hey, who are their customers? Who are their biggest customers? Well, Microsoft is, Meta is, Amazon is, Google is. You know, these are their biggest customers, right? Alibaba, Tencent, of course, as well. But, you know, I guess what? all of these companies are designing their own AI chips as well, right? And that's the real crux of it, right? And then furthermore, AMD is coming with their own chips as well. And they're finding some success. And so when you add those things together, it's like, oh my gosh, like there is a big risk here of NVIDIA being sort of competed away, right? If your biggest customers are designing their own chips and then, you know, sort of your historical competitor AMD in the gaming space, who's always sort of had 30% share, Whereas you had 70% share sort of in the gaming space, right? Now makes these GPUs for AI. And right now, NVIDIA has 99% share, right? For AI G, uh, GPUs, right? Like, is it possible that AMD, even if they get only to 30%, right? That really does make a lot more competition. And so this is the big risk that everyone's worried about. And, and, and to break it down, like, there's like, there's a few reasons why this is a legitimate risk. There's also, you know, I think on, on the surface, it sounds like a massive risk. There's a few reasons why it's not like, maybe as as scary as it seems on the surface too, right? And so so starting off with like, why, why is this, why does NVIDIA still have a moat in a year or two, right? You know, once these chips are started coming out. Well, it turns out, you know, Google, for example, right? Google's had AI chips longer than NVIDIA has had AI specific chips, right? Which is pretty crazy to say, but yeah, they've, they've been designing AI chips for longer than NVIDIA has been. And yet, right? And yet Google still purchases a lot of NVIDIA, right? Why? Because Google is as good as they are at design, as good as they are at, you know, and, and their partner, right? They work with Broadcom a lot. And Broadcom's been a stellar stock, of course. And it will continue to be because of this Google AI chip business plus the VMware sort of savings and earnings they're squeezing out of that. But the, uh, you know, when you look at Google and Broadcom, their design partners, right? They're making this chip, but turns out it's great, but not for everything, right? There's still a lot of use cases where I still need GPU. Right. Because I'm simply not as good at designing chips. Right. The other aspect is the software. Right. Google maybe internally can use more of their own chips, but externally, their customers still want GPUs. They don't want as many 
as many of the of their chips, right? Because the software is a lot easier, right? So there's the software component and there's the chip design component. And the chip design component breaks down into two pieces as well, right? There's networking, which is connecting chips together. And then there's the design of the chip itself, right? And so on both of those points, like for the compute side, right? So on both of those points, there's also sort of differentiation there. And long story short is that like, hey, Google, even though they're on their fifth generation of AI chip, right? They're on the fifth generation. They make two different versions of the fifth generation, right? They still purchase billions of dollars of NVIDIA, right? Now, now, albeit Google, despite being a company, it's roughly the size of, you know, quote unquote, the other, you know, Meta and Microsoft, they buy a lot less, right? Than Microsoft and Meta for sure. When they buy their own, right? They're buying about $10 billion of their own chip, right? And then they're buying billions of dollars of NVIDIA chip as well. So there is definitely market share that's been eaten by Google, right? And so the question is then, what happens when Amazon's chip gets good enough, right? Because Amazon's chip is garbage today, right? Their AI chip, very bad. You know, what happens when Microsoft's chip gets good enough, right? They just released it or announced it. It's okay, but it's nowhere near, it's nowhere near good enough, right? They're not even going to buy a billion dollars worth of it, right? What about the, you know, Meta chip? Likewise with Meta, right? They're not even buying a billion dollars worth of it because it's not that great, right? It's hard to design a really good chip, right? You know, especially out of the gate, right? Because again, Google has been doing it for five generations, with Broadcom, with a partner, and they're still not objectively, you know, even as good as NVIDIA in many regards, right? So so sort of you flow through to that, and it's like, okay, then this is, you know, there is a legitimate design thing there, right, in terms of designing the chip. And then there's software, right? Much in the way that, like, Intel sort of won, quote-unquote, data center, because everyone on the customer side, like like desktops and things like that, were buying Intel chips, right? And then developing on them is the same way with NVIDIA, right? Everyone is developing on NVIDIA chips today. All the existing software is on NVIDIA chips. So the portability of that software to other chips is an important concern, right? It's a major concern. And there are a lot of efforts around that, such as PyTorch 2.0, OpenAI Triton, things like that, that, that make software more portable, but it's still, you know, a big moat for NVIDIA going forward. So we can dive into that a bit more. The software point, I think, is very important. Just to reset the room for the remaining 20, 25 minutes here, everybody, please make sure you follow Phil and Phil, as you know, very knowledgeable when it comes to this side of the world. If any of you want to come up and ask a question, click that bottom left mic request button. Uh, and as always, this will be in podcasts under Lead Lag Live. Okay, now, now so a lot that, that you cover there, there is this other element, which is aside from, you know, Microsoft's and of the world and others doing their own chips. There's also the argument that a lot of this demand is, is being pulled forward, right? With this kind of manic ordering on the NVIDIA side. Any truth to that from your perspective that maybe things have just gotten too extreme too quickly on that end of things? So the funny thing about uh, the sort of over-ordering narrative is that semiconductors do this every time, right? And people, uh, and I'll explain what I mean, right? The semi- semiconductor industry always over-orders always goes through massive booms and busts, right? So most recently, of course, this AI boom uh, before that in 2023 and especially 2022, there was a chip what, right? But then, and, and you can still see it in certain companies like Analog Devices and Texas Instruments and Microchip when they report, right? All of those companies are, you know, tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars companies, right? And all those companies still have, you know, chip gluts right now, right? But when you go back historically, you know, this has happened a lot, right? The semiconductor industry, because the supply chain is the most complex in the world, has humongous lead times to increase production, right? And it's very hard to judge demand, 
right? It's really hard to gauge what it is, right? And every single time there's this concept of order overordering, if you will, right? Where chip companies will build and build and you have these orders that come in from firms and every single time lead times extend, right? Lead times for chips grow. They get so long and users are ordering so many of them, right? They're like, hey, yeah, we need this this chip for that purpose, you know? And, and anyways, the long story short is they end up getting far more than they needed to, right? And, and you end up with a glut at the end of it. And so the question is, is that going to happen with AI chips? Yes, it absolutely will, right? The supply chain is growing capacity so fast, right? It's like, do you think NVIDIA will have $100 billion of revenue this quarter? Very possible. Do you think NVIDIA will have 100, uh, you know, $200 billion of revenue next year? Or not this quarter, sorry, this year. Do you think NVIDIA will have $200 billion of revenue next year? Like, no, probably not, right? Like, you know, at least $100 billion this year is possible, but $200 billion next year is like, I just don't see how, right? But that's what the supply chain is building for. So there will be a glut, right? Like, that's without a doubt. And so the, the, then the other question is sort of, you know, when and how, when and what's the sort of rebound, right? Certainly, people are in a manic craze, right? Well, if I want four, if I want, you know, let's just call it simple, right? If I want one GPU and I know the, my part, my, who I'm buying it from can buy, t- can build 10 of them, right? And maybe there's 13 buyers, right? And everybody wants one. Well, then if I order one, I'm possible I won't get it. But if I order two, right? If I say, hey, I need two, then I'll definitely get one, right? And then everyone, so sort of a bit of game theory sense, right? Where you kind of double order so that you're, you get your order in, right? Sort of, and you get the amount that you need sooner. So sort of there's this whole game theory sense around it as well, where sort of, hey, like if I double order, then I'll get my chip sooner. And then there's also a bit of exuberance, right? It's like, well, I don't actually know how many I need, but let me order two anyways, right? Maybe I only need one, right? I don't know. But I certainly need them now, but I don't know how many I need because it's a brand new thing, right? So sort of there's also that aspect of it that people sort of have to account for as well. I, I would say that's an interesting point, right? That even if you're going to make estimates that future demand is going to look somewhat similar to today's demand, the more time that goes on, there's more clarity to your point about how many of these things you actually need. Which, if it's a lot lower in reality than what people are, or, or companies are currently expecting, then alone it is a deceleration of revenue. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think that happens like this week, by the way, or like this, the first half of this year, right? I think the party will go longer than a lot than some of the bears think, but also like for the bulls, right? It won't go as long as you think either, right? So it's a bit of both ends. Outside of NVIDIA and all the sort of major headline plays on the semi end that you hear about because the stock prices have gone ballistic. Um, I'm assuming you're always looking at other uh, companies, again, touched on the supply chain value side. What are some of the more interesting or exciting things that maybe aren't getting as much play that you're focusing on? Yes, I think a lot of the stuff that I'm focusing on is a lot of the downstream and upstream suppliers rather than necessarily like, of course, like we fo- we study NVIDIA and the supply chain a lot. But there is sort of, you know, when you go a couple layers d- deeper, right, like where is capacity being expanded and where is capacity oversupplied? And where could that sort of be leveraged and what can companies do to sort of better adapt to the current times, right? And what's going to happen once sort of AI chip demand cools down, right? And so there, it's hard to disentangle because at the end of the day, these AI chip companies are also selling many other chips, right? So for example, uh, I think Marvell is a really interesting company, right? Right now, right? Marvell, yes, they are selling AI chips. You know, they're, they're going to ramp their cranium and inferentia for Amazon. Uh, um, but that's not their main business, right? Their main business is historically has been storage chips, 
Uh, it's 5G telecommunications chips for infrastructure, right? It's networking chips for telecommunications as well as now AI, right? And so there, companies like Marvell have a very like, you know, interesting viewpoint, right? In that, oh, wow. So certain as- aspects of their business are doing horrible, right? And the AI business is doing awesome, right? That's for sure. Everyone knows that. But when it, what, what happens like when the AI sort of craze Kate, cools down, if it cools down, right? Well, it turns out like, you know, telecom and storage will come back, right? And those historically have made over half of the business for Marvell. And, you know, at least in like the second half of this year, estimates for uh, us and, you know, are, are, hey, they're much less than half of the business, right? So sort of flow through. And it's, it's very clear that companies that maybe are they selling only to AI? Do I want only AI exposure? That could be a possibility, right? Those companies are going up more, right? Do I want AI plus, you know, other business exposure? So when AI cools down, right? Like, you know, what exactly do you do you want as an investor is important? But companies like Marvell are super interesting. It's like, what's going on in telecom? It's like, well, no one cares, right? <laughs> right now, right? Um, and in fact, right, like, you know, there's a lot of, t- if, if it's not serving AI, right? Um, and so if you look at a lot of companies, actually, they're actually reallocating engineers, right? They're like, hey, like, if it's not AI, we want to reallocate them, right? I mean, we'll move you back when we when we need to. But today, right, like we should only focus on AI. Why would we focus on anything else, right? For those engineers, right? So it's sort of a, a bit of a catch-22 there, right? And exactly what you're looking for. And then there's companies that have no AI exposure at all. And they're doing horrible, right? You know, Texas Instruments and Microchip. And analog devices, the stock prices kind of are down some, but the revenue and their guidances are horrendous, right? And so, you know, what, what's going on there is also really important to watch and look at. Are, are there any synergies in terms of, you know, the companies that are pulling away on the AI manufacturing side with those that are not, like just mentioned Texas Instruments, you know, could there be a case made that some of these non-AI chip manufacturers become acquisition targets by the AI chip manufacturers? So for companies as large as Texas Instruments, no. Texas Instruments is far too large to ever be acquired and they do way too much, you know, military business. Same with microchip, right? But I think there's a lot of stuff in the small cap and mid cap side that that could happen to, right? So for example, you know, it's very possible that Coherent, which is a company that makes optics for uh, traditionally telecom, but now they're really booming in AI, right? You know, they're, uh, because AI is uh, such a, you know, booming category. So, you know, there's possibilities that companies like that could get acquired, right? And so they're about $7 billion right now. So you imagine like, hey, like an acquisition would be maybe in the $10, $12 billion range, right? So it's not a, you know, otherworldly to see an acquisition like that happening, right? Yeah, for sure. I, I clearly Texas will be too large. But my point is that it just, it gets to be interesting to think about consolidation. If it's sort of a, if AI is now becoming the difference between sort of the haves and have-nots in the semi-industry. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So... How do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, absolutely. So so we've actually seen like, you know, for example, you know, a lot of this NVIDIA's lead is due to their acquisition of Mellanox in 2019, right? And specifically Mellanox being a big leader in, in the networking space, right? Now it's called NVIDIA Networking. So, so the you know, a lot of, there's a lot of sort of hunting for networking assets by various leaders, right? Broadcom and Marvell were the other two leaders in networking. And of course, 
Uh, Marvell acquired a handful of companies over the last few years, Infi, Anovium, Cavium, et cetera. Very, they've rolled up all these sorts of companies to build a very legitimate like networking contender, which is why they're able to do some of these AI chips, right? And likewise, Broadcom has had this partnership with Google because they've had this historical networking, you know, sort of business, right? And so there's, you know, companies like Max Linear who are really in the dumps, right? Like I wouldn't even recommend like touching it because of, you know, some of the dynamics that are going on, but like they, they could be, you know, they have some good networking assets, but someone want to buy them potentially, right? Like, so there's, there are companies like that, that are really in the dumps that, you know, Hey, like they have networking assets, but they don't have enough to really launch into AI, but someone who has some or someone who has other aspects of the AI supply chain could, right? And so that's sort of always the question as well. What, what are some of the threats when it comes to demand for AI chips, manufacturing side of things? So, you know, there's a recession possibility, there's competition, right? But what are some of the, the real threats from your perspective that, and the overbuilding, right? And over, over demand that you mentioned. Uh, what are some of the sort of major threats that, that would worry investors? Take the mega trend out of it, right? Just in terms of where things are going in stock price. Yeah, I mean, in the 90s, it was very clear the mega trend of the internet and, and all this sort of stuff, right? Like people fantasized about everything that we're seeing today, right? You know, massive automation and people's whole lives being lived through the internet and all these sorts of things. But it's like, well, it took decades, right? And likewise, right, like the big risk with AI, you know, you know, chips and stocks there is, okay, there's going to be a period of exuberant building. There's going to be a period of like, hey, like revenue, you know, could do this or that on the on the end application. But at the end of the day, right, if NVIDIA sells $100 billion worth of chips, their customers, you know, depending on how long they depreciated over and all that sort of stuff, right, they depreciated over six years. That means, and then they have a margin target of say 50%, right? That means they need they margin target of 50%, 100 billion. They need, you know, if they buy $100 billion of chips, they need like $250 billion of revenue, right? Because there's other costs there as well, right? They need $250 billion of revenue and they need that over the six years, right? Probably more than 250, right? Because electricity and all these and development and all these other things, right? So, and their own costs, right? So really they need, you know, a multiple of NVIDIA's revenue, but that multiple of NVIDIA's revenue has not popped up anywhere, right? In fact, the only company making revenue on AI, right, more or less is Microsoft and Meta. Right. Microsoft, because they're selling, you know, the OpenAI APIs and they're doing, you know, ChatGPT and Copilot and then Meta because they have a humongous amount of advertising spending being driven to them and being able to make ads much better. Right. Like, hey, you know, you know, I, I sell ads effectively. That's what Meta's business is to, uh, for, for companies to advertise to my users. But, you know, what if I could make a, you know, targeted explicitly at that one customer, right, with generative AI, right? Well, then that makes the ad much better, right? And so there's money that Meta is making there and they're going to continue to make money there. But a lot of these AI use cases, you know, how long is the revenue going to take? You know, so it's the real big threat is revenue, right? And so when you look at like, hey, in the 90s, we built so much fiber that even in like 2009, Google was still buying fiber that was put in the ground in the 90s, right? That was just like sitting there dormant, right? And so, you know, likewise with AI, right? Maybe fiber is not the best analogy because fiber lasts a lot longer than AI chips. Yeah, you can upgrade uh, the sort of the modulators and such on each end, but, you know, and encode data through it at a higher signal rate and so on and so forth. But with AI, right? Like, it's like, yeah, people are going to spend a ton, but, you know, if the revenue doesn't come, they can't continue to spend a ton. Certainly people can make the bet, but, you know, that's the real big risk there, right? Is, okay, if, if Microsoft spends, you know, tens of billions this year to continue the growth, right? At some point, it's going to be $100 billion of spend, right? Just from Microsoft, you know, at some point, right? In, you know, five, 10 years, right? If the growth rate, you know, even 
you know, it could be even next year if the growth rate continued, but of course not, right? Of course not. But the, at the very least in a few years, right, if you want the growth to be even solid, but that, that, that requires massive revenue. And we haven't seen that yet, right? And that's the biggest risk. At what point do you think, I mean, it's hard to, I guess, know this, but at what point do you think that becomes sort of the, the boogeyman, right? There's some time limit under which it's like, all right, well, all these chips are being ordered, all this talk about AI is there, but it's just not showing up from a monetized, monetizable standpoint with all these mega cap, cap companies, let alone the productivity gains that should be ha- ha- helping every other company. Because that's really been sort of my, my own personal gripe with this AI narrative. It's that you are not seeing at least the stock side react from a discounting perspective of the future in a way that you would think uh, they should if AI is supposed to be so incredible for, you know, uh, it's sort of the next industrial revolution for the U.S. Well, the funny thing is like, you know, when people talk about the valuations, they keep focusing on the historical or they keep mispricing the forward, right? But in reality, right, like what are the biggest, you know, NVIDIA is making the most money from AI. Well, it turns out they're only trading at about like 25x EPS for this year, right? Based on our estimates, right? Broadcom is, you know, making the second most from AI, especially because of their Google partnership, right? Turns out they're only trading at like 25x EPS, right? Or even a little bit lower than NVIDIA, actually. So it's, you know, the pricing is kind of, it's kind of, you know, you could argue either way, right? You could say, hey, you know, if this is as big as it's going to be, why are these guys only trading at that much, right? And the other side is, you know, hey, if this is, you know, you know, yeah, they're only trading at that much because people don't expect it to continue to grow this fast or grow much, you know, in the future, right? So sort of there's a tale of both cities in regards to the valuation of, you know, high-flying stocks. Right, but, but what about the companies that should be benefiting from AI, right? Like so, so to me, it's more the disconnects, right? So again, if, if it's about productivity enhancement, then you should see, I, I think you can correct me wrong on this. I think at the extreme, you could argue that AI in, in the perfect world should make the margins for every company higher, right? Because it enhances. Ah, I see. You see what I'm saying? So that to me is more the disconnect. You've got the narrative around AI. You've got, clearly the demand is there on the chip side. Fundamentally, you know, we valuation is a different animal. But it, it doesn't seem to be reflected in those that should actually benefit from the output, is my point. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. But there's also the sort of like point of like, well, you know, did, uh, you know, did GE benefit hugely from the internet? Well, it's like, yeah, sure, I'm sure they benefited, but they lost so much, right? Because their core business fell apart, you know, in in many ways, right? They had to sell off assets and this and that, right? Did IBM benefit much from, you know, you know, cloud computing? Well, you know, they have a really crappy cloud computing business. It sells some, right? But it's like, if you go back to the 90s and you told someone about cloud computing, they'd be like, of course IBM, right? Like, it's like, so it's like, there's always that aspect of it too. And that like, just because a company can benefit from it, should benefit from it, doesn't mean a new player doesn't come in. and Disruptions like this are always like how new companies come in and how uh, a company could sort of, you know, be displaced in any capacity. Right. And certainly like S&P is up, but not like crazy for, you know, many companies who, you know, like you said, should have productivity boots. I'm curious for your own investing portfolio, right? Because I'm going to make the assumption that you're like others, right? You're putting some money to work in public companies as well. You mentioned the ventures. I'm going to make the assumption you're not all in on NVIDIA. But if you are, God bless. But what do you do from a sort of investment allocation perspective? Are, are there, you take the approach that this is just a boom across the entire industry. So buy a broad base ETF or are you going very concentrated in individual positions? Yeah. So, so historically, I used to run extremely concentrated. Actually, at one point, I think 80% of my portfolio was NVIDIA, right? So just, to, you know, not to be 
too crazy, but at one point it was, right? But over over time, you make concentrated bets when you have extreme conviction around an idea, right? And I think individual investors should either, you know, buy the buy, you know, an ETF and be like very spread out, just buy the S and P five hundred, or they should make extremely concentrated bets, right? Like I don't think individual investors who are not full-time investors should ever care about, you know, spreading their money like very broadly, right? Either don't pick stocks or pick, you know, very few, right? Because that's how much time you have to make a convicted bet and leave like buying like 20 stocks or, you know, 15 stocks to sort of, you know, institutional investors. But as far as like my personal portfolio on one, one, I did stop. I did sell actually all my semiconductor stocks on, on one, two, actually one, two, that, that whole first week of January, because we're sort of, you know, gets into like sort of compliance related issues because we hire, you know, we're, we're doing more and more work with certain funds and they don't want you to trade when you, they trade off of your information, right? And all that kind of stuff. So there's these sorts of things. And so that's why I've, I've been doing a lot more uh, venture investment more recently, but still in the semiconductor and AI space, it's just not public market firms. But generally, like, I think the, the one area that people sort of neglect way too much is the equipment space, right? Uh, so you look at semiconductor companies and they're very boom bust. And they're CapEx light businesses, but they're also like high margin, right? Think about NVIDIAs and things like that. But the best businesses of the 2010s, and they continue to perform like crazy this decade, are the suppliers to the manufacturing space, right? So these are called semiconductor capital equipment firms. They have crazy cash flow, right? They have some CapEx, but not a ton. They make the equipment for the chips, right? So they don't have to buy the equipment. They sell it, right? They're very R&D intensive, right? 20, 30% of their revenue goes straight into R&D. They spend tens of billions on R&D collectively, right? And they return almost all their cash to the shareholder in the form of either buybacks or dividends, right? Because they don't need a ton of capital. And generally they're, you know, they've grown pretty much every two years, right? So there is a bit of ebb and flow, but if you average out revenue for two years and two-year increments, they grow, right? Uh, and it's, per, you know, of course there is cyclicality in the semiconductor business, but, you know, companies like Applied Materials and Lamb Research and KLA, and ASML and these sorts of companies are by far the best investments that I think that like individual investors sort of have ignored, right? And a lot of funds pick them up, but a lot of individual investors have ignored them despite their stratospheric performance and continued performance. Dylan, for those who want to track more your thoughts, more your work and just engage with you, again, I, I give you a lot of credit. You built a hell of a Substack following and obviously very knowledgeable with you and your team putting that content out there. But uh, point people to where they should go to and maybe just sort of Parting thoughts on what you think people get wrong, since you mentioned this point about kind of, you know, wanting to correct the media, what people most get wrong when it comes to this space. I think one of the things, you know, so I said, I said, you can follow me on Twitter, Dylan522P or, you know, the team on semianalysis.com where we publish some of our research, especially the newsletter, right? The newsletter is very like timely and aware and everyone gets that at the same time, right? Time stopped to move just on our newsletter, which is pretty cool. And people have had to refute us on our next calls or trying to argue against us, which is really cool, you know, because we've published like research that's like technical as well as market re related, right? Anyways, on, on in terms of what people are getting wrong now is I think there's like a whole narrative again that like, you know, like this, like, like most, most recently, I think Financial Times posted a article about this one credit analyst. I can't remember if it was JP or Goldman saying like, hey, NVIDIA is scamming people, right? Like, or not scamming people, but like, more or less like, like, look, NVIDIA is, the stock is doing really well, but, you know, look at what they're doing in the venture side. Basically, they're arguing, hey, they're investing in their customers, right, uh, on the venture side. But it's like people kind of, you know, are ignoring like, hey, like Coreweave, right, they got an investment from NVIDIA and, 
and perplexity, and you just go down the list, right? There's so many companies that have gotten uh, investments from NVIDIA, uh, but those checks are all very small, right? It's not like NVIDIA is investing hundreds of millions of dollars in a company who turns around and buys hundreds of millions of dollars of GPUs, right? It's like, well, CoreWave is buying billions of dollars of GPUs, but their investment from NVIDIA is not even $100 million, right? So it's like, yes, NVIDIA invested, but they didn't invest like the, they didn't induce the demand by investing, right? Which is like sort of one of the narratives that is sort of starting to pop up in the media. Everybody, please again, give a follow to Dylan. Very good. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate it. Cheers. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.